I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, August 7th, 2000. Oh, I'm sorry, it's September 18th, 2012. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, How on Earth Susan Moran speaks with Chad McNutt, a biologist with big ideas about how to handle the prolonged drought affecting Colorado and several other states. And we'll be joined by author Deva Sobel to hear about her new book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos. But first, it's a look at the news in science. How many times have you heard an otherwise smart, capable adult say, I'm bad at math? Chances are you've heard it or even said it pretty often. In a 2010 survey, about a third of American adults reported being bad at math. And one in five reported feeling anxious or frustrated when confronted with a math problem. Well, it turns out those feelings of anxiety start to show up very early in life, almost from the moment a child enters school. Researchers at the University of Chicago, writing in the Journal of Cognition and Development, say that math anxiety is common in students as early as first or second grade. What's more, feeling anxious about math interferes with a student's ability to solve math problems. Paradoxically, the effect of math anxiety is worse for high-achieving students who tend to do well in other subjects. Researchers believe that's because anxiety interferes with working memory, the ability to juggle many bits of information at the same time. I'll show you what I mean. Let's see what happens when I ask you to do a bit of arithmetic in your head. Ready? First, let's add 2 plus 3. Remember that answer. Next, divide 12 by 4. Got it? Okay. Then multiply both answers together. Now, it doesn't matter if your head is filled with a crazy jumble of digits or a coolly calculated result. Either way, doing math in your head taps into your working memory, and it may have made you feel kind of anxious. According to researchers, young students with poor working memory develop other strategies to deal with math problems, like counting on their fingers. So even if those students feel anxious about doing math, their strategies still work. But students with good working memory learn to rely on it, which helps them get high marks in most subjects, but it also means that they can be totally thrown off by math anxiety, so much so that they can end up half a year behind other students in math class. Luckily, the researchers tell us there are ways to fight math anxiety. One is to have students write about their nervous feelings or draw an expressive picture. Researchers say this offloads some of the worry. Another is for teachers and parents to frame math problems as a fun challenge rather than a threat. Some cool things happened in science on this day many years ago. First on this day in 1984, mere 28 years ago, Joe Kittinger completed the first solo balloon crossing of the Atlantic. Before this feat, Kittinger was an avid and adventurous skydiver and balloon flyer while serving in the military. Also, 193 years ago today, in 1819, French physicist Léon Foucault was born. He was most widely known for inventing the so-called Foucault pendulum, a device that demonstrated the effect of the Earth's rotation. His work inspired the pendulum that swings from the tower of the Duane Physics Building at CU Boulder. Foucault's other accomplishments include an early measurement of the speed of light and the discovery of eddy currents, namely electric currents induced in conductors when they are exposed to a changing magnetic field. And that's not all. This physicist 
is also credited with naming the gyroscope, though he did not actually invent it. Up next, experts are meeting at a conference in Denver this week to discuss the implications of prolonged drought conditions here in Colorado. How on Earth's own Susan Moran and conference organizer Chad McNutt will join us here in a moment on How on Earth from KGNU. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. Even if you haven't felt its effects, no doubt you've heard of the drought that afflicts Colorado and several other states. This Wednesday and Thursday, a conference in Denver will address drought conditions and how they affect different habitats and people, such as farmers and ranchers, skiers and river rafters, and of course city dwellers. Among those taking part in the conference is Dr. Chad McNutt, a biologist who works at the National Integrated Drought Information Center. Dr. McNutt is Deputy Program Director of the Center, which is at NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder. The center helps inform state and federal agencies about how much water there is and isn't, and how everyone can get water they need. No small task. Dr. McNutt is taking some time away from a pre-conference exercise in Denver to talk with How on Earth via phone. Chad, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. So first, it may seem axiomatic, but I think it's not. Could you define drought? Yeah, it, it's a it's a very difficult uh, thing to define. In fact, there isn't one um, best definition for drought. Um, the way we like to think about it, though, is really it's uh, it's really insufficient water to meet demand, and that demand could be based on ecosystem services or the ecosystem needs. It could be based on our own um, sort of um, socioeconomic needs. So it really it's a it's a hard thing to define, and um, but ultimately, it's about um, whether or not it can meet the demands of society or, or the ecosystem. Um, so that's how we normally think about it. Huh, so it's, it's not just measuring, it's, uh, well, it's looking at the effects. It is. We really look at impacts when we talk about drought. Um, and so if, if you don't have impacts, there's always the question of, are you experiencing a drought? And so it, in some ways, drought is, is very subjective, and it really depends on the sector that you participate in, um, on whether or not you're feeling... Um, you're in a drought. So it, it's, it, it makes it very difficult to communicate as well. Yeah, so big picture now, especially in Colorado, how bad is it? Right now, over, uh, well, right now, 100% of the, uh, the state is in uh, some form of drought. Um, and and based, this is based on the, the U.S. drought monitor. Um, you can compare that with the, the rest of the U.S., and that's about 64% of uh, the U.S. is in some form of drought. And that uh-huh. compares to about 30% uh, from last year. So it's it, in, in, and in Colorado, it's been a particularly uh, warm summer here. In fact, the last three months have been the warmest on, uh, on record. Boy, and I know we've seen corn prices shooting through the roof. I mean, aside from the international impacts of that, um, who's feeling the effects the most? I know that's a subjective question and answer, but, but here in Colorado. Well, we, we've seen the, the ag community certainly feel uh, the impact of, of drought. Um, some of the, the recreation and tourism uh, groups have certainly felt it, uh, the rafting industry. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, the, the municipalities uh, haven't necessarily felt the impacts yet, but they're, they're keeping an eye on, on the situation. In fact, uh, many of them are participating in, um, in the conference and in the, uh, the drought exercise that we're, uh, we're taking part in today. Yeah, so I'm curious about the historical context first, just for a little background. So drought has been part of the planet's national nat- natural history for ages, I mean, for millennia, dating back to prehistoric times, you know, seen it in tree rings, whole regions have been displaced. So what, what's really different now? 
Well, it, it certainly is a natural part of um, of the, the planet's process processes. Um, what we're what we're seeing now in, in a in a drying in a drying world, and when we when we talk about climate change, you would expect to see um, uh, increasing frequency and severity of drought, um, but we haven't really observed that in the record. And and part of that is because one, we have a have a short record, and as you said, you know, looking back in time, going back to 2,000 years ago, we've seen uh, you know some very severe droughts in in the record, and in in the more recent times, in the 1930s and the 1950s, seen some very extreme droughts as well. Um, and so it's hard for us to kind of tease out the, the trend when you have these relatively recent, uh, fairly extreme droughts. So um, the, the at least the observed trend, it doesn't show an overall change in the frequency of drought. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but right now we can't, we can't tease it out of the observed record. So then can you not really tease out to what degree climate change is having an impact? Right, that's that's exactly right, and and there's a, a there's a nice summary of this in the in the most recent report on extremes from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, right. the IPCC, where they they, they discuss this, and, and and like I said, right now it, it is very difficult because we are limited by by our observed record, um, you know, given we've had some like I said we had a, a a very intense drought in the 30s, and then we had a very persistent drought in the 50s, and so trying to to draw a trend when you have those very very severe events. Um, uh, you know, somewhat early in our observed record, um, makes it difficult to really see the trends, um, you know, out to 2012. Right. And that, I don't know if that takes into account population growth. I mean, it seems like you've got these colliding trends with the warmer climate and soaring population. That, that's exactly right. And in, in particular, you know, places like uh, the southeast, uh, Atlanta is a very good example where it's a fairly um, wet environment. They get over 50 inches of rain a year in a normal year. Yet they're running into some of those population issues where there just isn't at certain times enough water to meet the demands that are that are being placed on it. And so, so really, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go, you go ahead. So really, it it it's likely not necessarily going to be a changing climate that gets this. It's really going to be the population and the demands being placed on the resource that's going to tax the system. You know, probably long before we get to really seeing a, a you know a trend in changes in the frequency and severity of drought. Well, thanks so much. We're running out of time, but where can people go to get more information on your site and also that's, about the uh, conference in Denver? That's right. The, the best place to go for, for drought information in general is drought.gov, www.drought.gov. And uh, the, for the information on the, uh, the drought conference, you can go to the Colorado Water Conservation Board's website. I don't have the URL with me, but I think if you type in the CWCB, the Colorado Water Conservation Board. It'll bring you to the uh, the conference website. They're they're uh, hosting the um, the conference for the state. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, and good luck with the conference. And uh, right. that was Dr. Chad McNutt with the National Integrated Drought Information Center at NOAA. Stay tuned to KGNU this week and next week, actually, for coverage by Jim Pullen of the Drought Conference. And stay tuned right now to How on Earth. In a moment, we'll be joined by author Deva Sobel, who will tell us about her new book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Most people probably think of science journalism as stories about new discoveries and futuristic ideas. 
But another aspect of the study and reporting of science has to do with understanding the rich history of scientific research, discovery, and the people involved in the quest for knowledge and understanding the universe. After all, old ideas that we take for granted now once were new discoveries and futuristic ideas. Also, the historical timeline of science usually is presented as a linear, well-planned process of search and discovery. But the process isn't necessarily that orderly and often takes unplanned twists and has failures that require going back and starting over and can be driven by the quirks and personalities of the individual scientists. Deva Sobel is a science journalist and author who tells the stories of the science and the scientists from the past and how they connect to the present. She's a native of the Bronx, and she says the nearby zoo and botanical gardens were important childhood haunts. She has been a staff reporter on the Science News Department of the New York Times, freelance writer for numerous magazines, and recently she also teaches science writing. Her historical science books have included The Planet's Galileo's Daughter, and Longitude. Ms. Sobel is with us in the studio today to talk about her more recent book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos. This book also contains the play And the Sun Stood Still, which will be presented in a free staged reading by the Boulder Ensemble Theater Company this Thursday, September 20th at 6.30 at the Derry Center for the Arts. Welcome to How on Earth, Deva. Thank you. Happy to be here. I, I know some of our listeners may roll their eyes at this, but just to make sure everyone's on an even keel, what is Copernicus known for? For turning the universe inside out, for saying that the Earth rotates and revolves and does not reside motionless at the center of everything. It sounds like Copernicus had some similarities to someone else that you wrote about, Galileo, mm -hmm. in coming up with ideas that may be new and revolutionary at the time that we take for granted now, but uh, they had perhaps some problems in the past. What is Copernicus's story as far as that's concerned? Copernicus knew when he came up with this crazy idea that it would sound laughable to people, and so he worked on a mathematical treatise his entire life to lay out all the background people would need to do the math and understand why he was making this claim. But he never published it. And because he'd been in correspondence with other mathematicians, people knew what he was working on. So when he was in his late 60s, a young genius from another country traveled 500 miles to find him and convince him to do what he had avoided doing for a lifetime, namely publish the big book. What was his resistance to publishing? I mean, that's he how you says, get your information out. Yes. Well, in those times, a lot of information went around by letter. You would write up your results and send them to someone who might be interested in, or several people, and then those people could copy your letter and send it on to a wider network, a little bit like networking today, sure. only not as quick. A little slower, but you have to have patience. And printing was new, but there was an excellent scientific printer in Germany. Copernicus was living in Poland. He spoke German, but he was in a German-speaking part of Poland and a subject of the king of Poland. But his visitor was Lutheran from Martin Luther's own university. 
were there cultural, religious resistance uh, yes. that also kept him from publishing? Not from publishing, but it was strange that he would welcome this heretic into his very Catholic area where the Lutherans had been banished. So you imagine the two of them meeting. What did they say to each other? That was the question that prompted me to write a play. Between Copernicus and... and Redicus was the name of the visitor. Was that part of your motivation for writing the book? That was the entire motivation. These two people, so different in age and outlook, religion, but they come together over this idea, and they get it done. And the book gets published in Germany by a Lutheran press, even though it's got a Catholic author. It's dedicated to the Pope. And then it's that book. I guess book. that's kind of a saving grace there. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the book that brought Galileo to trial. Your motivation was more kind of the interpersonal story there rather than what the science was of Copernicus, which I'm sure many people have written about. Yes. What was that pivotal conversation all about? How how did he push him to do it? Your background uh, as a science journalist, you're familiar with trying to get ideas of science across to people and writing in a in that way, how is it different and what entices you about writing books as opposed to doing the journalism? The um, depth, that was that's what appeals to me most. When I started writing books, I thought I would do it once or twice, that learning lots of different things and writing articles on many topics was always going to be what I loved best. But It turned out not to be true. There's a great appeal in spending years with a character. And I uh, must admit, I I do like that better. You get to know the people better. You do. And, of course, I'm a lot slower now. Sometimes I think, was I ever really a deadline reporter? <laughs> I don't sure think I could. gives you a few deadlines. <laughs> yes, but not every afternoon. I, I notice that your books tend to have an astronomical bent to them. Indeed. What, what is the reason for that? Oh, I'm, I'm a, a star lover, a stargazer. I learned that from my mother, who was a amateur astronomer and a navigator. Hmm. But I got seriously interested by going to a public lecture that Carl Sagan gave before he was famous. That would do it for most people. Turned my life around. So how do you mix the historical fact and the science with the story that you want to tell? It's different every time. I, I don't think I could give you a simple answer. In this case, it happened to be writing a play. I've never done that before. But that seemed to me the best way to approach this story. Then I wrote the book around the play to give it context. But the play really came first. This play is stuck between a couple chapters of the book. But actually, yes, it sounds like it was, the, it was the motivating force behind it. So... Tell us a little. The play is called And the Sun Stood Still. Yes. Well, that's text from the book of Joshua, which was the text raised against Copernicus. Because if the sun is standing still at the center, as he claims, why would Joshua have had to give it that order? And his point was that you couldn't 
ask those questions. You couldn't try to jibe science with scripture. And Galileo took up that argument later. And in defending Copernicus, famously said, the Bible is a book about how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So is the play based on any text or any reference? Oh, yes. There are, there are lines from Copernicus in the play. That was great fun to do. So you actually took real words from Copernicus, Redicuses, yes, and yes, they both them had into published works. Yes, and there are some letters that survive also, and those drive the dramatic line of the action. Well, if people want to be able to see the play, oh, that I is hope they the will. Way. Yes, <laughs> the play uh, will be performed here in Boulder, and it will be a free staged reading performed by the Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company this Thursday, September 20th at 6.30 at the Dairy Center for the Arts. The performance is free and open to the public. Ms. Sobel will be there and will be available after the performance for questions and answers and to sign books. And you can find more information about it at the boulderensemblethater.org. So we've been talking with Deva Sobel about her book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos, which includes the play And the Sun Stood Still. Thank you very much for coming into the studio. A pleasure. Thanks. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Today's show was produced by me, Ted Burnham. And our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music from Calamus. And thanks to Jim Pullen for running the board. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone and find us there. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Joel Parker.